As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's up, everyone? Welcome into another episode of Equal Play, where we chop it up with some of the most influential minds in women's sports. I'm your host, Annie Costable, and this week I'm joined by a truly remarkable mind in sports, the director of the NBA and WNBA Mind Health, a clinical and sports psychologist, Dr. Kensa Gunter. Hey, Annie. Thank you so much for the intro. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Kensa, I'm so glad we could do this because, you know, like we said, just off the air for a minute, we've had a conversation before about mental health in sports. And I think it's something that was was really valuable to bring to our listeners. And I'm glad you are on board with it. But before we get into all of the work that you're doing with the NBA and the WNBA, I wanted to start where we always start with this podcast is, you know, your relationship to sports growing up. So what was that relationship like and how did sports impact you as a child? Yeah. So I was very um, active in sports growing up. My primary sport was swimming, which a lot of people don't know, but that was kind of my first love. I, I, partic- I started participating in competitive swimming when I was eight years old and, and did so through the age of about 13, 14. I mean, at that point I transitioned from swimming to basketball. So I played basketball in high school. Um, I did not play sports in college, but really feel like my youth sport experience was really impactful in terms of just developing skills of confidence, the ability to work with others, just the ability to do something to see my confidence reflected in my activity and also just to have fun. So sport really played a huge role in my life and I imagine we'll get into it, but I I got injured um, during my senior year of high school, which prompted me to move towards the the career path that I ultimately took. But I would say it had a really big impact. I played a lot of other sports too, but those were my two biggest uh, swimming and basketball. So you mentioned, you know, an injury your senior year. I'm curious when that happened, even at such a young age, was your identity really rooted in sport? Because that's something as a journalist, we're very aware of, you know, the end of a player's career or or a coach's career and and how difficult that that period can be and, and how an individual is prompted to, again, establish an identity away from something that they've always been so rooted in. So even at a young age, I'm curious if that impacted your decision to pursue a professional career in sport. 
So let me be clear. So the injury in hindsight was relatively minor. I mean, it was an ankle <laughs> injury, right? It, it was an okay. ankle injury, though, but it resulted in me being sidelined for a few games and I was on crutches as I was rehabbing that injury. And uh-huh. um, it happened during my senior year of high school. And what that experience kind of brought to the forefront for me was we had a lot, we had resources available to help us perform on the court. But in that moment where I was rehabbing, it the question came up, who helps to support the athletes when they are not able to perform on the court uh-huh. in the ways that they are used to or in the way that they want to? And so the physical therapist that I worked with was outstanding. But that experience, again, got me thinking about who offers and gives to the athletes when they may be in moments of need or they may be in moments of again, being unable to to perform fully. And so that led to me, um, when I went to college, pursuing or initially pursuing a degree in physical therapy. I wanted to be a physical therapist because I wanted to be in a position to offer something to athletes in moments where they may have needed something beyond just assistance with performing on the court or on the field. And so that's how that experience really impacted me. And so I, I started in my undergraduate career pursuing physical therapy and thought about pre-med because of that experience of being injured during my senior year. Away from your sport career, were you always a, like a caretaker type of individual? Was was your personality to to give to other individuals? I'm curious how that impacted your career choice as well. Yeah, I think so. My parents were really exceptional role models when it came to giving back to others and really showing up for other people. I mean, absolutely. Uh-huh. They took they took care of themselves and they took care of our family. But I really did grow up in a place that was very community minded. And so uh-huh. my parents, yes, but also just within my community, there was a sense of taking care of your neighbor, taking care of those around you. And, and if you had it to offer and give, like, offering and giving and supporting the community in the ways that you could. And so I would say that's a value that I witnessed in those around me through my parents and through my church and my community, and certainly something that I internalized. Um, and I think definitely manifested in my my choice of career and the way I tried to engage um, in my life as well. So you mentioned physical therapy, contemplating pre-med, Yep. And obviously you you're in this position now, which is quite different. How much were you being moved by, you know, signs in your life or inspirations that were popping up or individuals who were giving you inspiration? Like what what was the turning point? What impacted or or led you down a different path than you maybe set out to when you originally got to college? Yep. So organic chemistry was the turning point. <laughs> It was probably not what you were expecting, but truly, like I was on a on a physical pre-physical therapy track and I took organic chemistry and was like, no, this class, it did its job. I was like, this is not the class for me. And if I have to take more classes like this, it's probably not going to be um, beneficial <laughs> for me moving <laughs> forward. So, But truly, what I recognized was that wasn't the route, but I had by that time, that was my junior year, I had fallen in love with psychology. So my Psychology 101 class, the professor made studying human behavior sound like the absolutely most fascinating thing in the world. And so I really did. I was developing a curiosity and an interest in understanding why people do what they do and what is the what is the cause for human behavior? Why do we move? Why do we how do we function together? And so around the time that I realized hard sciences are not my thing, I, I was 
tapping into more of my curiosity and passion around psychology. And so instead of pursuing the pre-med route, I shifted to psychology. And at the time that I graduated, I was really looking into what are some of the subspecialty areas that I can enter into in the field of psychology. And one was forensics and the other was sports psychology. And I I actually pursued the forensic route before coming back to sports psychology. But you asked earlier about the injury and my athletic identity and how that impacted me then. And and certainly I think I saw myself as an athlete, but I really saw myself as a student and I saw myself as an intellectual. I was much Mm -hmm. more attached to my academic identity. And so for me, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to become a doctor. And again, once I tapped into that passion of around psychology, I knew I wanted to become a licensed psychologist. And an understanding that sports psychology was kind of a newer field at the time that I was pursuing graduate work, that mm-hmm. became my area of interest. It was a way for me to combine my love for sports, um, my passion for being an academic and, and pursuing my doctorate in a way that allowed me to combine those those two things, psychology and sport, into a career. And so that's how I moved from physical therapy to psychology, forensic psychology, and ultimately to pursuing my doctorate in clinical and sports psychology. Okay, my mind is just like working a million miles a minute right now. I have so many questions based on that response. But my first one is is something that I always try and, and gather or, or pull from from the people who come on this podcast, because as a young individual, I was so desperate for this information. So you talk about, you know, going down this path, pursuing physical therapy. And then it wasn't until your junior year that you kind of got rerouted, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll call it. And so how, what advice do you have for young individuals who, yes, start down a, a career path and are being pulled in a different direction and maybe are afraid to listen to that pull because they're like, okay, I already started down path A. How how can I how can I take a right when I've been going left this whole time? Like, what what is your advice for for young people and and honestly, just people in general when that reroute presents itself? I'll use the word that you just said. Reroutes don't mean that you're not still headed towards a destination and reroutes Mm -hmm. don't mean that you still aren't pursuing um, whatever goals you may have in mind. It just may mean that you're going to get there via a different path than you initially thought or anticipated. I think in our society today, when I think about I think about college students or I think about anybody who is pursuing some type of career or occupational path, I think the message that we get very directly and even indirectly is you're supposed to have it all figured out. Like mm-hmm. quickly. I think a lot of times we see the message of like, you should have your um, career plans figured out by the time you enter college. Right. And I right. really, I would encourage and say, allow yourself time to explore, allow yourself time to be curious. I understand that there's this pressure to feel like I've arrived or I know But knowing comes through exploring different things in the same way that I entered college thinking I was very clear and knowing that I wanted to do physical therapy. When I learned that that was not for me, I had to to listen to that as well. So it's important to know what you want to do. It's also very important to learn and understand what you don't want to do, because that helps you to narrow down your interest and really hopefully get on a path that leads you closer to your passions and and those things that will really feel like you are connected with your purpose, right? And Uh so I think patience 
is something that we don't have a lot of in our society that I think is helpful in that process. Giving yourself permission to explore, giving yourself space to be curious, understanding that you don't have to have it all figured out and detours and reroutes don't mean that you're no longer on the path. It just means you're going to get there a different way. And so being open to the path as it unfolds, as opposed to thinking that you have to follow some script that you created in your mind. And as I say it again, I know it can be really hard and challenging because we get all of these messages that if you have not accomplished by the time that you're 18, 20, 21, 25, that you're behind, but mm-hmm. behind what, right? Like right. behind what? And so I think, again, allowing yourself time to evolve, time to develop, time to explore is really what allows you to hopefully connect to what moves you and what really is of interest Um, and again, what connects to your purpose and your passion? Ah, you can't see me right now, but I'm smiling (laughs) so big because that is just like such a valuable piece of advice and, and a valuable answer to that question. And it's just, it's so true. And I think it's unfortunate because there are so many people in the world who aren't getting that advice Mm -hmm. from their, their unit, you know, their, the people around them, which you know, is, is why the people that you surround yourself with, it's, it's important that those people see you and understand you because that advice that you're getting from, again, your support system will, will have an impact on your decisions in your life as well. And so the second question that was, was coming to my mind as you were answering my question earlier was about who you were seeing in, in the psychology space that was, was combining sport and psychology, because and, and again, I'm 32, so, so maybe this is an ignorant take, but to my knowledge, sport and psychology, sport and mental health is just this very new, this very new lane. So as, as someone who was coming up in it and was inspired or motivated to pursue a career that combines sport and psychology, who were you looking to? Like, who were you inspired by? Who were you getting advice from? Did you see a ton of women in this space? Did you see a ton Mm -hmm. of black women in this space? Like how, how did you even know that this was an avenue you could, you could go down? The way I learned about the field was a very um, unconventional and unexpected way. So I was actually, I told you I I pursued a, a degree in forensic psychology. And while I was completing Um, a master's internship at a prison here in Atlanta, I was talking to a psychiatrist who was working there and she was asking what I was going to do next, right? Because I was preparing to finish that internship experience and finish that degree. But again, she knew I wanted to pursue a doctorate. And I said, well, I really still love sport and I, I want to continue in psychology. And it was the psychiatrist in a maximum security women's prison who said to me, you do know there's a field called sports psychology. (laughs) I had no idea. But again, by expressing my interest, someone who was familiar planted that seed and that resulted in me looking up programs that focused on sports psychology. And so that's really how I came across the field. And I found a program that, that, that provided a doctorate in clinical and sports psychology and the professors in that program were working in the field. So two of the professors in that program were at the time working for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee as consultants with some of their winter sports teams. And then there was another professor in the program who had a private practice working with equestrian athletes. So I, I, those were three of the, the first people that I came into contact with who not only were my professors, but were also doing the work. To your question about who else did I see in the field, 
not a lot of people. When I was in grad school, the field was predominantly, primarily dominated by um, white male professionals. And that's, I mean, two of the people in my, two of my professors were white males. And so that's who I saw. But as I started to step into professional spaces, attend professional conferences, look at the peers in my space, I started to see a few more folks, but there did not seem to be a lot of diversity in the field, which was really, um, I couldn't quite make sense of that because I know how diverse sport is right. and the world of sport is. And so to see a lack of diversity within the field of sport psychology really just didn't quite add up for me. But I will say some of the, the initial diverse practitioners that I saw, particularly black practitioners, were Dr. Ross Flowers, who ultimately ended up being a supervisor um, during my internship and postdoc experience, and Dr. Wendy Bollaby, who I know you've had on the podcast yes. before, uh-huh. who was a peer. We were in grad school together but I, I, we were close. We were close in in terms of our matriculation through school. But we also were really good friends, and so I got uh-huh. to watch her walk the path and and truly following some of the steps and the paths that she blazed as she carved out space for herself in the field. And so now uh-huh. there are certainly more diverse professionals that I see, but initially there weren't. There was not a lot of representation that I could look to to give me confidence that there was space for me. I truly just knew that I was passionate about both of the areas and I had really good instruction and supervision and just continue to put one foot in front of the other in hopes that the path would unfold in a way that that I wanted it to. And it did, because at that time, the careers were in college counseling spaces. They were in private practice and they were working with the Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And so, again, I saw folks in those spaces, which made me think, oh, this is possible. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but there, there is a path that leads to a career. And so let me just keep walking. That's so interesting to me because this concept of like, if you see it, you can be it is so real. Right. And there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of individuals in the world who are like, you just got to that that have this mindset like oh anybody could do anything they want if they work hard enough and okay sure like hard work is is obviously valuable but if you don't see someone who who looks like you or or even someone who can inspire your mind to go there we're taking dreams like out of the hands of 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 individuals right so I'm curious how important, yeah, your unit was once you once you did open this this door to sports psychology. Once you once you did get that spark, how valuable, how important was it to have people like Dr. Balabi around you to to help you along the way or to be a friend along the way? Not even that it's like okay, you had to always go to Dr. Balabi for advice or something, but how important was it just to have the right people around you to keep, yeah, to keep that vision alive, to, to allow you to see what was possible? Yeah, I think you make a really, really important point um, in terms of hard work is certainly one piece of the puzzle, but right. having access to opportunities, um, having people that advocate for you. I, we talk a lot about allies, but I think it's also important to have sponsors, having those people who will promote you and and speak for you and advocate for you, even when you may not be in the room or even know that they're doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that representation, right? Like it is something very powerful about being able to look up and see someone who looks like you doing something that you think you would like to do at some point. Like that gives you a sense of, um, uh, it gives you an increased sense of belief about Mm -hmm. the capacity for that dream to come true. And so 
I mean, I, they were vital to me, not only just moving in sports psychology, but thinking that I could continue and, and complete the doctorate and then find a job and like be in this world of psychology. Um, I think they were very instrumental in that. But I'll be completely honest with you. There was about eight years that I stepped away from the field because I didn't see as much representation as I thought I, I should be seeing. And also, I just didn't have the energy to try to create space at a proverbial table. Right. Mm. Like, I, so I stepped away from the field because in part because of the lack of diversity that I saw. And because this was during the time period where I was still in school and I was focused on getting my degree, not trying to carve space for myself in a whole profession. Right. So yeah. I think I, I think your point is important because I, I valued those relationships. I valued those people. I valued the role models that they were and the encouragement and motivation that they were. But even in with them being present, I still chose to step away because it felt like I just don't see where there's space. And so I stepped away from the field for a, a good amount of time, like I said, about eight years. And then I finally came back to the field. And at that point, it was still lacking in diversity, but I was at a different place in terms of feeling more confident in who I was as a professional, feeling more capable and settled um, in terms of integrating my personal and professional identities. And so I felt better equipped to try to come in and actually create a space for myself in the field and then try to do work. And mm -hmm. so I, I think, and I, and I still have, some of those people are still in my community today. They still serve as role models. They are still very close professional colleagues and very close friends. And I've also expanded that network. So I think having a community of a, of support is critical. I, I would say I identify as a Black woman. So I, I think for me and my personal experience, it was essential to have mm -hmm. folks that I could go to who I didn't have to under, I didn't have to explain some aspects of my experience to, to know that they understood. Mm -hmm. So they could not only provide support and motivation, but they could provide contextually and culturally relevant support and motivation and encouragement and challenging, right? Because mm -hmm. they too understood some of those cultural dynamics that were also playing out as I was trying to carve space in a professional space, do work in mental health, do work in sport, deal with challenges, adversity, and successes, right? Like they, they understood that. And so they were instrumental when I was trying to get into the field and they remain instrumental even as I move through my career today. You mentioned there that you took a step away what was it that brought you back? Like what opportunity was it that pulled you, you back into this space and how important was, was removing yourself for that period? Cause that makes me think about, you know, pouring from an empty cup or, or mm -hmm. sure you can have, you can have the fight in you to, to make space for yourself. Like you said, at the proverbial table, but gosh, I mean, sometimes you got to step away to protect yourself too. So I'm just, yeah, I'm curious what mm -hmm. the opportunity was that brought you back. And mm -hmm. if you could speak a little bit more about the importance of, of having enough juice, I guess we could say to, to go to bat like that. Yeah. So when I stepped away, I, I really stepped away from um, trying to carve space into the professional organizational landscape of sports psychology, like the field overall. I was still doing yeah. work. I mean, during that time, I was working at a college counseling center. And so I still had the opportunity to do work. Like I was working with college students, providing general psychological services to the, the general student population, but also I was serving as a liaison to athletics. So even though I stepped away from kind of trying to 
to join and connect with the professional field, I was still doing sports psychology, clinical and sports psychology work. So during that time away, I was developing my skills. And also I was developing a network of friends and professionals that were just generally in the world of psychology. And I think that was really important for me too, was to feel like I had space in the psychology world, even if I wasn't as connected to the world of sports psychology. To your question of what brought me back, um, here in the States, there's an organization uh, called the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, and they are the premier sports psych organization um, here within the States and, and, and certainly known internationally as well. They hosted a conference here in Atlanta, which is where I'm based. Mm-hmm. And one of my colleagues reached out and asked me if I was going to attend. And initially I was not, but she, um, through her persistence, um, <laughs> got me to, to agree to go. And so I attended a conference and it, that was in 2012 here in Atlanta. And that was the first time I'd attended a conference since 2004. And it truly was reengaging with the community via that conference that triggered me um, triggered my interest and triggered that spark for me to try to get back into the field. And so I've, I've been connected to the field, I would say, since that time. But it truly was a matter of convenience in terms uh-huh. of it being local. And it was a matter of having a colleague who invited me and wouldn't take no for an answer. And so that's how I got reconnected with the the professional landscape of sports psychology. And, and that was that was the moment. I'm curious, based on that answer, what your take is on divine timing or destiny or something that that, you know, is meant for you. And it just coming down to, again, being in the right place at the right time, coupled with being ready for for an opportunity. So, yeah, I'm curious what your take is on divine timing. Yeah. So I, I also identify as a person of faith. And so I think timing and things happening in timing is something that I absolutely believe in. I, I tend to think um, that things happen as they should. Right? Mm-hmm. And so to your point, I think that there's a combination of timing, there's a combination of opportunity, but there also has to be that readiness. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think at the moment that I was invited, there was a perfect storm of those factors that came together that resulted in me being ready to step back into a professional space um, regardless of what, what I was going to meet there, I was ready to step back into the space. And I actually think that was probably the most important piece, but I, I wholeheartedly believe things happen as they should. I know there, there's a saying that says what's meant for you won't pass you by. Um, I think sometimes your lack of readiness can delay whatever is meant for you, but I, I uh-huh. do think that a combination of timing, opportunity, my readiness, and also I will echo a great community was really uh-huh. important. Um, and I think that those are divine factors that can come together and create really cool opportunities at different points in time. Which I think goes back to your earlier point of, of once you start and once you embark on the path with that nugget of inspiration leading you, you're, you're chipping away every day. It may, it may not come exactly how you envisioned it. It may not come in this, you know, time window that, that society has like set out or or established for us, set up for all of us, but, but it will happen if you stay true to, again, that, that inspiration that is leading the way. And in my opinion, that's, you know, something that I I feel is, is reflected in, in what you're sharing with us today. Yeah. And I think I will just a little bit to add to that. I think that I also will say that I, 
when I made the decision to kind of try to step back into the world and, and see what's happening now, I did really try to step in and be open as opposed to step in with a level of expectation. Right. Uh -huh. Like I didn't think that I was going to come back to the association and it would look the exact same. I didn't I didn't know how different it would look. But I came in saying, OK, let me see what's what's here now and then I can go from there. And so I think also having a level of openness versus expectation when stepping into different situations and different opportunities um, also can help to shape what that experience is. Right. Because if we step in with expectation we may be easily disappointed or surprised, but if we step in with openness, then we truly are just in a place to receive whatever we find and then to really give ourselves space to think through how we best fit based on what it is that, that exists. So I'm curious then how you balance expectation with openness, because personally, I'm someone who, if I expect things to, to be a certain way, like I have can sometimes have a very black and white perception on things. I'm like, this is right. This is wrong. Like if you're good, if you, if it doesn't look this way, like that's just, that's just wrong. We got to do it right. There's like a correct, you know, again, there's a right and a wrong way. So in my mm -hmm. head sometimes, and yep. again, so I, I'm curious what your take is, how you balance expectation with, I guess maybe realistic expectations because again, our world is growing and getting better every day. And so sometimes I, I hate this, but sometimes I guess you do maybe have to taper your expectations. I don't know. I'm just curious what your take is yeah. on that. Yeah, it can be hard. Like, again, I'm going to, I'm going to provide an answer, but I also want to acknowledge it can be challenging. And even though I'm, I have a response, I recognize there are moments and situations in my life where I can live in that black and white as well. But but a mantra that I do try to live by is everything's 100 percent gray. Right. Uh -huh. It's always uh -huh. a combination of black and white. Right. It's it's not uh, either or it's both and. Right. And so I uh -huh. really try to adopt that perspective when I'm um, facing different situations or thinking through different scenarios. But the things that really come to mind for me is I try to approach situations with a level of humility and I try mm -hmm. to approach situations understanding that the perspective I have belongs to me. And mm -hmm. that it, that does not mean that anybody else sees the situation in the way that I do, has the understanding that I have. They, too, have a perspective that is just as valid. And so mm -hmm. I think when I go in with expectation I, and, and I still go into some situations with expectation, but I also try to constantly bring openness with me. Right. Because mm -hmm. I'm human. So I have expectations and I want things to be a certain way in certain situations as well. But I also recognize, again, I have to have a level of humility and understand my way is not the only way. My way might not be the best way. My perspective belongs to me. Other people's perspective belongs to them. And we have to try to create room for both. Like that's how we all grow and we mm -hmm. all benefit from what everyone brings to the table. Um, and so I really try to hold on to humility, openness and understanding that, that my view is my view. And if I want room for my view, then I also have to be willing to allow room to hear other people's view. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of try how, how I try to balance those. And again, understanding that everything is a hundred percent great. <laughs> the gems, the gems, Dr. Kensa Gunter is dropping today. <laughs> I am so appreciative of, of the direction of this conversation. And obviously your experience working with the NBA and WNBA is top of mind for us here on the podcast. So I wanted to get into that. And mm -hmm. I wanted to start with, you know, how, how your career started in the NBA and WNBA. 
what what led to an opportunity in these two leagues? Yeah, so I was, let's see, I'll, I'll talk about one of those detours real quick because that's really yeah. important to this story. So as I said a moment ago, I was working in college counseling. When I finished my academic studies, I quickly moved into the space of college counseling, was there for about five years um, until I was unexpectedly laid off. Definitely not a part of the plan. Um, mm -hmm. But being laid off created an opportunity for me to step outside of working for an institution and into the space of private practice. And mm -hmm. so in 2012, I stepped into the world of private practice. And from there, different opportunities presented themselves. So being in a space where I could work with different institutions, work with individuals, teams, groups, organizations through my practice created the opportunity where I then started to, to work in a contract capacity for some professional teams. And mm -hmm. so that's that, that move from working for an institution to working for myself, again, that came about because of the unexpected detour of being laid off really did open up a lot of doors that I never anticipated. And so in 2013, that was my first experience in pro sport, um, working at a team level. And from working at the team level, um, over the course of a few years, that led to me being connected at the league level in 2018, having an opportunity to provide a presentation um, at, a, at an NBA league wide event um, that was about mental health awareness and education. And so mm -hmm. that was in 2018. And from there, I was then um, brought, brought on board as the director of Mind Health in January of 2020. And so I, I share that timeline, again, going back to our conversation about patience in terms of thinking mm -hmm. about your career, because it didn't happen overnight, right? Like I went into private practice in 2012, but I did not step into the role that I currently have until 2020. But everything that I did along the way helps me to develop skills, relationships, confidence, to, to learn from mistakes that I think culminated into me feeling like I was capable of stepping into and offering something through this position as director of Mind Health, which I currently hold. Can you break down the NBA and WNBA Mind Health program and, and give us some some detail on, on what exactly it is and how, yeah, how this this program initiative came to be? Yeah, so the program itself, quite simply, um, I'll share our vision. So within Mind Health, our, our vision is to um, humanize the conversation around mental health um, and to position it as the essential element that we know it is of excellence, wellness, and performance, both on and off the court. Our guiding principles as it relates to mind health are to humanize mental health, to elevate performance, and to honor lived experience. Understanding that mental health is a continuum that includes mm -hmm. illness, but also includes wellness. So whereas we want to be able to have support in place when people are in distress and need, and need um help, we also want to proactively talk about ways that we can enhance and increase our mental fitness, right? Via mental mm -hmm. skills training, via learning different life skills and coping strategies. And so Mind Health as a program started in 2018. Um, and it really started as a res in response to listening to athletes talking, starting to talk about their mental health experiences more publicly. And specifically, mm -hmm. I think about DeMar DeRozan and the tweet that he posted in 2018 as it related to depression. And then I think about Kevin Love and the story that he shared. Prior to them, I even think about Shamiqua Holesclaw, the WNBA right. legend who talked about talked very openly and created a documentary about her mental health journey. And so Mind Health is a combination of trying to provide guidance, 
um, and direction around what type of mental health resources um, could be helpful to, to have at a team or in a team-based market. So we, we provide guidance. We also provide resources and support by trying to increase our education and awareness across the league, including the teams as it relates to mental health-related topics. And then we're also trying to promote culture change, right? Just change and decrease the stigma around mental health and really think about mental health and emotional wellness as a portion of health. And again, as an element that we need to focus on when we think about optimizing our health, wellness, and performance, we have no problem thinking about it in terms of our physical well-being. And we want the thought process around how can I take care of myself to also just reactively include a a focus on mental well-being as well. This might sound like a basic question, but I'm asking because I know so many people who have a hard time understanding, you know, the value of mental health. But when it comes mm-hmm. to physical health, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't tell someone with a broken arm to just like go get some rest or take a deep breath, you know, or try and calm mm-hmm. down. Like we wouldn't we wouldn't we wouldn't do that because it's something you could see. It's 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 all of these reasons, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what your take is or, or, or what your thoughts are, are on why it's become so easy for the masses to dismiss mental health issues as, as something that, yeah, isn't, isn't vitally important the same way that, again, going to the doctor for a physical ailment is. Yeah, I think I think you can look historically throughout our society in terms of the way that we've talked about mental health. And quite frankly, we really haven't talked about mm-hmm. mental health. I mean, discussing mental health and wellness in the public domain like we do now is still a relatively new thing. And I think truly when we used to think about mental health, I think about you know pre- previous decades, it was something that was discussed in private and secret if it was discussed at all. And when we talked about mental health, there was automatically this negative association and connotation placed on it. So we didn't talk about how do you promote mental wellness? We would always talk about mental illness. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we talked about mental health, the automatic default thought went to mental illness. So we only talked about it in the context of somebody being in distress, somebody potentially having a diagnosable condition, somebody needing support, their their functioning potentially being impacted. But we only talked about the illness aspect of mental health. Right. Which we absolutely need to talk about in a much more comprehensive way, because, again, like physical illnesses, there's treatment available for mental illnesses, but we didn't think about it like that. We really stigmatized mental health through the way that we talked about it or didn't talk about it or the limited way in which we would bring up mental health as a topic. And I think what we've seen over the last several years is a shift to not only acknowledge that mental illness exists, I mean, one in five adults in the United States in any given year has a diagnosable mental health condition, but we Mm -hmm. now are also talking about what can we do to promote wellness? And that's a conversation that we've always had on the physical side, right? We've Mm -hmm. always talked about getting enough sleep and drinking enough water and exercising as ways to promote health, not because you're not healthy, but as just ways to maintain and promote health. And I think now- We're starting to move into that kind of conversation with mental health. And I truly think that COVID and us managing a global pandemic um, is a part of what helped to usher in that change because it was like, none of us asked to be in a global pandemic, but all of us are being impacted. So Mm -hmm. what do we do to take care of ourselves differently? Mm -hmm. And mental health became a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. I also think 
athletes in particular have led the charge and been really instrumental in shifting some of the public conversation around mental health as well, because we tend to view athletes as superhuman. We view them as being exceptional in the things that they do. And many athletes over the last few years, athletes who we would, we would label as truly accomplished in their particular sports have openly talked about their mental health journeys. And so what that has done has allowed us to see, wait, these people aren't successful because they've never experienced adversity, but a part of their success and a part of their excellence has come because they have learned how to navigate very real challenges that they face as people. And that hasn't mm-hmm. become a hindrance to them being able to be successful, but navigating those challenges, mental health related or not, has been a part of their success journey. And I think Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, certainly, again, I go back to Shamiqua Whole Squad, but I even think about Katie Lou Samuelson, um, mm-hmm. Kelsey Plum, I think mm-hmm. about uh, Kayla McBride, a number of athletes who talked about different aspects of their mental health journey. And we don't look at them as less than, we, we look at them and say, oh, well, if they experience something and can manage, maybe I can too. So I think that's a part of the shift that's happened over the last several years that I hope continues as we broaden our understanding and our discourse around mental health to include, again, not only addressing illness, but promoting wellness. Just hearing you describe the vulnerability of, of some of the athletes you mentioned, you know, Shamiqua Holdsclaw set a standard. You mentioned DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love. It's, it's interesting to me because... You know, there's a whole group of individuals that exist in the world that are like, that want sport to be separate from any issue or, or you know, political, cultural, socioeconomical context. They, they, they mm-hmm. want sport to be separate from that. But what we saw with these players and these athletes, these humans that you mentioned, is their vulnerability allowed us to allowed us to, again, as a society, open our eyes to something that has been ignored. And so it, it just, in, again, in their vulnerability, they're proving the value of, of sport and the intersection of sport with, with all of the things that I mentioned previously. And so I'm curious, you know, from your stance, if you can elaborate a little bit on the true power of these individuals who, again, like you mentioned, you know, some, some people believe are, are soup just, just above any issue because of their ability as athletes. But, but truly what, what is changing the world is the, the fact that they are human just like us and they're the power that exists in, in their vulnerability. Yeah, I, I would say vulnerability and courage, right? Like the yeah. courage to to speak publicly about um, something that's very personal and intimate to you. I think there's a there's a vulnerability, absolutely, but there's a courage in that. And I think your point is well taken because I think for many of us, we we tend to look at sport as an escape, right? Like it's mm-hmm. something that I watch and I I engage in for entertainment or for enjoyment, um, and and for the the people, the athletes who are participating in these sports these are their lives, right? And so what I think we've seen is for athletes to say, absolutely acknowledge, I I can be excellent in in my performance, but that does not take away the reality that I'm also a person. 
And mm-hmm. so sport is not this kind of neutralized, separate entity that exists in our world, but sport is really a microcosm. And so, and, and athletes are people first, right? So mm-hmm. what we're really looking at is human beings who happen to be exceptional in their chosen profession, which happens to be sport. And I think as we hear, as more and more athletes have shared their story, one of the take home messages for me that I've, I've tried to hold on to is what they're asking for is to be seen as people. They're Mm -hmm. asking for us to honor and respect their humanity. They're asking for us to recognize that even though, again, they may be exceptional in their field of play and maybe they have access to resources that some of us don't have access to, that does not um, diminish their humanity and the fact that they're actually trying to live lives just like the rest of us. And so um, I think it's a really powerful, because we tend to look at sports figures Um, again, as superhuman and as those who kind of do exceptional things, I think it really is powerful for someone to use their voice, to use their platform, to, to bring awareness to the very real human experience that all of us are navigating. Right. And for, and particularly I think about activism and advocacy and speaking out for issues and speaking out, um, around sociocultural concerns and realities that they're not just speaking out about them because they have a platform like these it's because these issues affect them in their lives that goes back to that human piece i think about um i think about the nba and the wnba but the, the, the wnba really stands out to me as being a league um that truly is has advocacy at its core right thinking about the identities of the individuals that participate in the wnba and again they are living lives at the intersection of race and gender and sexual identity and parental status and and religion, right? In the way that all of us are, we're all living at those intersections. And so the fact that they are vulnerable and courageous enough to, to use their voices and their platforms to speak about these issues that not only affect them, but affect the rest of us, because again, we're all human. But then for those who also add that mental health element to it, I think it just... Uh, creates a common discussion. It creates a common thread. And what it does is it reminds us all of our humanity, regardless of what your occupation is, regardless of what your station is in life, regardless of what intersection of identity speak most to you. We are all people first, just Mm -hmm. trying to live um, and trying to be successful and trying to thrive and trying to be in community and, and trying to be confident in ourselves. And I think they and their conversations have opened that that door to help us see um, the commonalities that exist in, in all of us. And I really think that's been, uh, again, another helpful part of the conversation because it's not them over there and us over here. It's all of us together. And I also think COVID and then some of the social injustices that we all witnessed and had to walk through 2020, 2021, and even currently also kind of created a uh, a neutralizing effect so that we realize, oh, no, wait, we, we are really all in this thing together in many mm-hmm. ways. We've got to figure out how to walk forward together, allowing room for everybody and their uniqueness and their diversity as we continue to try to be healthy and, and survive and thrive and, 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 and do this thing called life. So to that point, can you describe the importance then, the role that the media plays in sharing the humanity of sports figures, who they are beyond their sport and how you've seen that change over the course of your career? Because even in in my short career, short time as as a journalist, as a journalist covering the WNBA, I've seen a, a huge shift in the way that 
the media shows up to cover the WNBA specifically. And then when I jump into other leagues, I'm like, okay, this is a to- this th- this media landscape is totally different than the media landscape that is covering the W. So, in your professional opinion, yeah, what is the importance of the role that the media plays in in sharing these stories? If I keep the concept of humanity at the center and just that notion of athletes and again, all of us are people first. I really think uh-huh. the the stories that we tell are really important because the stories that we tell, particularly media, right? Like the stories that media tell help to shape what we focus on. It helps to shape what we attend to. It even helps to frame and shape how we perceive a person, a team, an athlete, a story. And so I really think um, that there's a level of care and responsibility that I think rests on the shoulders of media when telling these stories. Now, I, I, I also understand that sometimes the story is a hard story, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes media might be encountering an athlete or encountering persons when they are in a very tense and tough emotional moment. Sometimes um, it may feel like a hard time for that athlete. And so that, that doesn't mean that the media personality doesn't need to get the story. But again, I go back to if I keep humanity at the center of it, I mean, I just think that we have to be um, careful to respect the dignity of the persons that we're talking to because, mm-hmm. because media and personal relations, media and personal interactions, that's a relationship, right? Right. And so I think it's a relationship. I think there's a way to tell challenging stories in a humane way, right? And I also think sometimes, and I think this is true for people, back to our conversation about expectations and openness. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we may go into a situation expecting to hear a certain story or just looking for the information that confirms the story we have in our our heads. And what's Mm -hmm. really important is to be open to the additional stories that might be told, to be Mm -hmm. open to the additional information that might be shared. And so I guess when I think about media's role in kind of maintaining or promoting mental health. Um, I certainly think about honoring the humanity of the people that you're engaging with, understanding that as a relationship, treating them with the dignity that you would want to be treated and understanding that telling full stories um, is more helpful than the soundbite, right? Stories in context is Mm -hmm. more helpful and more um, shares more of a narrative than a sound bite out of context, right? And I, I just think that that is, is one way um, that media can help shape stories about people, shape stories about mental health in a way that serves their job as media and that, that mm-hmm. also serves us as consumers of the information and the stories that media is producing and sharing. Absolutely. It's it's honestly such, a, I I. I truly like value my job so much because every day I'm getting a life lesson from these individuals that I I get to share space with. And like you said, the, the power that lies in, in words and storytelling is, is huge. And if you don't understand that power and, and, and everything that goes into, yeah, sharing, sharing someone's story and, and allowing people to get a better understanding of who, who a human is, then yeah, I, I don't know that this this space is is really for you, or that this this job really is for you, because again, it just it can't be it can't be overlooked. Yeah, and I'll just one more piece. I'll say, like I I think certainly the what the content of what you're discussing is important. I think the if I had to simplify it, what I'm speaking more to is the how. 
you go about obtaining that what, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And thinking about the how, the, the approach, and, and thinking about if you were in the same situation of the person that you're interviewing, how would you want someone to approach you, right? Mm-hmm. How, or, or even how would you want someone to approach a loved one? Because I get it. Sometimes the story is hard. The moment is challenging. They, you, you, they don't want to hear the question, but you have to ask the question. And so I recognize that all of those dynamics exist. So again, understanding the what and the content you're trying to obtain. But the key, I think, is thinking about the how you go about obtaining that information and and respecting the dignity of everybody involved, yourself and the person in the relationship as you are obtaining that information and then sharing the story. I appreciate that message. The last question I wanted to get an answer to from you is is something we kind of touched on briefly in, in another part of this conversation. But how do you see the sports landscape addressing of mental health related challenges impacting the world? I think um, the the world of sport is um, certainly a major player in that conversation. I think over the past several years, we've seen professional sport leagues um, uh, and teams within professional sport leagues increase the number of mental health and performance resources that they have available for players, coaches, and staff at the team levels. I also think we're seeing that shift in the world of college athletics um, in terms of Um, again, having resources that are available, not only to provide assistance in distress, but also how are we thinking about creating healthy individuals, promoting health and wellness to to optimize performance, but also how are we thinking about creating healthy environments, right? Mm -hmm. I think mental health is something that we've often treated as just a concern of the individual. And Mm -hmm. I, I think truly what, what mental health one way for us to think about mental health is the intersection between the individual and the environment. So not only thinking about healthy skills for an individual, but how can we create healthy cultures and healthy systems and how can we have organizational health in a way that cultivates wellness and performance and excellence. And so I think, I think the the world of sport will continue to be a leader. I think the athletes will continue to be tremendous advocates for themselves and, and subsequently for others as they share their stories um, of not only challenge and adversity, but also healing, right? Not, mm-hmm. not just challenge and adversity, but also health and healing. And so I think they will continue to share their stories, share their vulnerability, put their courage on display. And my hope is that it continues to trickle down to the rest of us or trickle through the rest of us, not necessarily down. And we too will give ourselves permission to think about how we're taking care of our mind health, to think about what have I done today to pour into myself in a mental and emotional way. What have I done today to increase my mental fitness? And so my hope is that sports will continue to be a leader in in sports athletes and the people within the world of sport will continue to be leaders in continuing this conversation, promoting healthy behaviors, um, and also honoring the humanity of all of us and Mm -hmm. and continuing to, to put that message at the forefront. Dr. Kensa Gunter, ladies and gentlemen, mic drops. Thank you so, so much. This, I, I, I wish we, we, we should have this conversation again, maybe in person down the line. I'm sure our sure. paths will cross again, but I have not stopped smiling throughout this whole conversation. I just appreciate all of this advice you've given, all of this knowledge you've dropped. I appreciate you so much for sharing it all on Equal Play.
Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.